Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Let's look first of all at Acts chapter 6-1 where the internal problem that threatened the church is explained. What started out as a problem that could have split the church ended up uniting the church and making it more effective so that people, even unbelieving Jewish priests, were coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. Have you ever noticed how polarized our country has become in recent years? These days, opposing sides can barely have a civil conversation. And tragically, this same sense of hostility and bitterness has started creeping into the church as well. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress outlines the biblical response to disagreements among believers. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. My friend Chuck Swindoll likes to say this about today's culture. Chuck always has a way of getting right to the point. He says, this is no time for wimps. And that is so true. In my lifetime, I've never witnessed this level of intense oppression on the local church. Our adversaries have become downright hostile. Their goal, it seems, is to silence our message, and we cannot afford to be wimpy. Well, that's the sole purpose of my brand new teaching series and my book by the same title, Unstoppable Power. In this study, I'm showing you the path to supernatural resistance. The key is relying on the strength that comes from God's Spirit alone, because no person, no circumstance can prevail against God's power. Today, when you give a much-needed gift to the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, I'll make sure you receive a copy of my book. If you believe you already have a copy, think again. This is brand new, and it's the perfect choice for your Sunday school class or small group Bible study. In addition, every dollar that's given between now and July 4th will have twice the impact because of the $500,000 matching challenge. This means your generous gift of $100 becomes $200. A $500 gift becomes $1,000, and on it goes. This has been a challenging year, financially speaking, and we're trusting God to replenish our resources through visionary friends like you. Please take advantage of this moment and give generously to the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. Now, it's time to get started with today's message. We've come to Acts chapter 5, and I titled today's message, How to Avoid a Church Fight. New York Yankees player and catcher and Hall of Famer Yogi Berra. Remember him? He was noted not only for his skill on the baseball diamond, but also for his humorous mangling of the English language. In fact, some of his expressions have become known as yogiisms. I bet you've heard a few of them through the years. Things like, um, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Or one of my favorites, if you don't go to other people's funerals, they won't come to yours. But perhaps the one that he is most noted for occurred in the 1960 baseball season when Roger Maris uh, and Mickey Mantle hit back-to-back home runs in two different games. And when Yogi Berra saw that the second time, he blurted out, it's deja vu all over again. 
You know, I thought of that expression when I was reading our passage for today in Acts chapter 6. When you read the account of what happened to the early church, it's like it's deja vu all over again. We've been there before. Remember in Acts chapter 5, the church was facing two threats. When the church was prospering and being effective for Christ, uh, Satan was trying to attack the church in two different ways, internally and externally. There was that internal problem of sin, and God dealt with it by (laughs) removing Ananias and Sapphira. But then the church faced outside threats, persecution. We had the apostles being beaten and threatened in the name of Jesus to quit proclaiming the name of Jesus. And neither tactic worked in silencing the church. You know, I have found that Satan is not very original. There's nothing creative about Satan at all. He doesn't have to be. The same old tricks work year after year, millennia after millennia. And that's true when it comes to Acts 6. We find him using the same tactics to try to silence the church. Internal problems and then external threats. And today when we come to Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the internal problem. In fact, it's the first controversy in the history of the church that the church faced. And then next time we're going to look at the external threat, the killing of the first Christian martyr. Let's look first of all at Acts chapter 6-1, where the internal problem that threatened the church is explained. Remember, the church is a few years old now, and it is growing furiously. I mean, on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, you saw 3,000 men who were saved. They didn't count the women and the children. Don't ask me why, they just didn't. But then there were 3,000 men. Then when you get to Acts chapter 4 and you find Peter and John preaching and healing, there's another 5,000 men added to the church. When we get to Acts 6, there's probably 30,000 members of the church now, men, women, and children. People say, you know, your church is too big. I just don't think we can worship God in a big church. We're nowhere near the size of the first church in Jerusalem. Uh, It was growing. In fact, it was growing so fast that Luke uh, quit counting. He said the disciples were increasing in number when we get to verse 1 of chapter 6. But remember, where there's growth, there are going to be problems. There's a famous proverb, Proverbs 14.4, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. In other words, if you want to have a clean stable, just get rid of the animals but that doesn't do you any good if you get rid of all the animals. You want to have a church without any problems? Just get rid of all the people. But that kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Where you have people, you're going to have problems. And that's what happened in this growing church. Now look at verse 1 in which the problem is explained. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, in the early church, it was mainly Jews in the early church, but there were two categories of Jews. There were the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Jews who lived outside of Israel. They lived in Gentile uh, Greek countries, and they had been transplanted to Jerusalem. Because of that, they had adopted some of the customs of the Gentile nations. 
They didn't speak Hebrew and uh, Aramaic like the native Jews. They spoke Greek. So you've got these transplants, these Hellenistic Jews. And then you've got what Luke calls the native Hebrews. These are people who were born and bred, as we say, in the land of Israel. They spoke Hebrew. And so there were some cultural differences between these two groups. And yet the miracle of the church is because of the Holy Spirit, they were united together. They loved one another. But there were some divisions that were beginning to appear. And one of those divisions was over how the widows were being dealt with. The Hellenistic Jews, the transported Jews said, hey, our widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. In Jewish society, uh, widows were on the bottom rung of the economic ladder. Uh, They represented people who by and large were forsaken. They had nobody to support them. There were no government assistance programs to speak of from the Romans. Uh, They had need of food. And so in the Jewish uh, temple, they provided weekly meals for those widows in need. And for those in desperate need, there were daily meals provided for them. Well, the church took over that responsibility. It continued that tradition of taking care of the widows. And the Hellenists were saying, our widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, that was the problem, the overlooking of the widows. In verses 2 and Three, you find the solution to that problem proposed by the apostles. Remember, the apostles were the leaders of the church, and the job of a leader is to solve problems. And so, verse 2, the 12, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation, that is the church, and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, we can't do what we're supposed to do if we get ourselves involved in serving the widows. Now, that word serve is interesting. It's the Greek word diakonian. We get our word deacon from it, as we'll see in just a moment. But they said, we can't do what we're supposed to do and serve tables. Now, they weren't saying that there is something inferior about ministering to widows or that it was unimportant. Not at all. In fact, remember in James 1.27, James would say, true religion is caring for the orphans and the widows. It's important to care for the widows. It's very, very important. We take that very seriously. But what the apostles were saying is we can't deal with our primary responsibility of preaching the word of God if we get involved in taking care of the practical needs. Therefore, here's their solution, verse 3. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is the first instance of an organization of the church. It started out with apostles, but now we're adding a second group in the church, the outlines of the office of deacon. Now, let me stop here and say something about the book of Acts that will keep you from misunderstanding and misapplying the book of Acts. Acts is a book of transitions. Transitions. Not everything, not every change happened automatically. There is a transition 
between Judaism and Christianity. And we'll see the debates ahead about what parts of Judaism ought to be held over for Christianity and what parts ought to be discarded. But there was a transition from Judaism to Christianity, from temple to the church. And you also see a uh, transition in the organization of the church. Uh, for example, on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, the only office in the church was that of an apostle, the 12 apostles. The people Jesus had selected, minus Judas and plus Matthias, but they were the leaders, the 12 leaders, and Peter was the leader of them. Now you have a second office, the deacon, the ones who would serve the widows. This isn't fully developed yet. This is an outline of what would become the office of deacons. And then the church progresses. Uh, the apostles begin to get old, and they are close to dying. And not only that, the church is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Who's going to look over those churches? You can't leave it up to the 12 apostles. There are too few of them, and the ones that are there are dying. So the office of apostle evolves into pastor. Now, the pastor is not an apostle. There are no more apostles today. But the office of pastor evolves out of the, the office of pastor evolves out of the apostles. And only when you get to the epistles in the New Testament, like Philippians, Titus, 1 Timothy, do you have the two offices of the church fully developed, which we have today. In Philippians 1.1, one of the prison epistles, Paul wrote to the pastors and the deacons. Two offices, pastor and deacon. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for the two offices, pastor and deacon. There's not one office in the church. There are not three or four. There are two, the pastor and the deacon. Now, let's look at each one of those for just a moment. First of all, the office of the pastor. Office of the pastor. There are three terms that the New Testament use, uses to describe the pastor. Sometimes he is called the overseer, the episkopos. We get episcopalian from that. The word uh, overseer means ruler or bishop. It's the word used in 1 Timothy 3.1. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, an episkopos, it is a good work he desires to do. This refers to his responsibility in leading the church. I was reading some comments this weekend by Dr. Criswell, and he asked the question. He said, people ask me, am I a dictator? And the answer is yes. A benevolent dictator, but a dictator nevertheless. Well, he was speaking tongue-in-cheek, but he was using this word episkopos. The pastor is the leader, but 1 Peter 5 is very clear. The pastor isn't to be a little Hitler running around, demanding everybody follow him. Uh, he's not to lord it over those under his charge, Peter said. But he is the leader nevertheless. Then there's a second term, elder. Uh, that word presbyteros, elder. It refers not to the pastor's chronological age, but to the dignity and the spiritual maturity of the office. And then the third word is the word shepherd, a poimane, pastor. This refers to the pastor's responsibility to care for the sheep under his charge. Uh, he is to 
feed them with the word of God. He is to protect them from error. He was, is to minister to them. He is the shepherd. I'm reading right now a biography of Dr. Truett from 1938. It's interesting, in the nearly 50 years he was here as pastor, nobody in the church called him Dr. Truett. Never. He was called pastor, the pastor. And Dr. Criswell, as you know, his favorite term for himself was not Dr. Criswell. It was the pastor. To me, that's the most uh, uh, coveted name for an overseer is a pastor. He's the pastor, the shepherd of the church. And by the way, uh, the flock doesn't belong to him. Uh, no church belongs to its pastor. It belongs to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. We are the under shepherd, the one who's been left in charge for a little while while the chief shepherd is away. But one day he's going to return and he's going to ask every under shepherd, every pastor to give an account for how he has cared for the flock. Now, what's interesting is all three of these terms, overseer, elder, and shepherd, are used interchangeably in 1 Peter 5 to describe the same office. People get mixed up on this about is there elders and pastor? I mean, what's the difference? Look at 1 Peter 5, beginning with verse 1. Peter said, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, there's that word, presbyteros, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. There's that second term, poimain, pastor, shepherd. And then the third phrase, exercising oversight and not under compulsion. Exercising oversight. There's the third term, episkopos. Do you see that? All three terms refer to the same person, the pastor, the overseer, the elder of the church. But there is a second office in the church, and that is the office of deacon. Again, we have the outlines of it here in Acts 6. Diakonian, uh, serving, ministering to. And when we get to the epistles, we find them fully developed. In 1 Timothy 3, uh, verses 8 through 13, you find the qualifications for the deacon. And here in our church, we have the office of deacon. The deacons perform a multitude of tasks to free the pastor up to take care of his responsibility. They not only look over the Lord's Supper or uh, the care to widows, but they look by and large over the finances of the church. I don't have anything to do with the money. I never touch the money. I can't do anything and shouldn't have anything to do with the money. The deacons look after the money, the finances of the church. They make sure we've got the right insurance. They do a multitude of things to take care of the practical needs of the church. So here's the question. You've got these two offices, pastor and deacon. Now, who's the boss? Who makes the final decision? I remember talking to my mentor, Howard Hendricks, years ago. I said, Prof, what's the biggest issue in the church today? He said, it's what it's always been. Who's going to be the bus driver? <laughs> Who's going to run the show? Major issue in every church. Is it the pastor? Is it the deacon? It's not the pastor. It's not the deacons. You know who has the final say? You do. The congregation of the church. And that's what we see beginning in verses 5 and 6. The, uh, the idea 
the solution to the problem was proposed by the apostles. They recommended it. That was their job as a leader to come up with the solution. It was proposed to the congregation. And look at Acts 6, verse 5. And the statement about having deacons found approval with the whole congregation. The congregation had the final say. The New Testament church, ladies and gentlemen, is a congregational church. It's always been that way. Always has been that way from the beginning. Now, there are people who try to change that. They think they have a better way of handling things. No, we are a congregational church because that's what God designed. Adrian Rogers said it best when he said the New Testament church is pastor-led, deacon-served, and congregationally approved. And that's what we see here in this early church in Acts chapter 6. And so the whole congregation approved the idea of having deacons, and they appointed the deacons. We do that here in our church. When we need more deacons, we open it up for you to nominate the deacon body. When we are looking for a pastor, we open it up to you to suggest people you would like the search committee to look at. And so we find these seven who were chosen in verse 5. They were Stephen. He'll be instrumental as the first martyr we'll see next time. Philip, who became the first evangelist, the only one who was ever called an evangelist in all the Bible. And then Procurus, Nicanor, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas are all mentioned, as well as Nicholas. Verse 6 says, And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. This is the first ordination in the Bible. What is the purpose of an ordination? When we ordain somebody, we're not calling them to their office of service. No church has the power to call somebody to be a deacon, to call somebody to be a pastor. Only God calls us to service. Ordination is a human recognition of a heavenly reality. When we ordain people, lay hands on them, we are recognizing that God has already set these people apart for a place of service. Now, what was the result of solving this problem God's way? Look how the church is blessed beginning in verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. What started out as a problem that could have split the church ended up uniting the church and making it more effective so that people, even unbelieving Jewish priests, were coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, I'm going to show you how these important offices in the church, pastors and deacons, play a significant role in resolving conflicts. Be sure to listen again to Friday's program when I address how to avoid a church fight. At Pathway to Victory, we're praying that God would use today's message to ignite a renewed passion among pastors to preach the gospel with boldness. I love getting feedback from pastors who listen to Pathway to Victory, like this note from a pastor in Northern Ireland. Wesley wrote, Pastor Jeffers, our country has an amazing heritage for sending missionaries around the world. But sadly, the trend in Northern Ireland has become anti-Christian. Thank you for your forthright teaching of the Word of God and for having the courage to give your people what they need rather than what they want. 
Well, thank you so much, Wesley, for that word of affirmation. And friends, when you give a generous gift right now, God is using your gift to reach pastors all across America and even to countries like Northern Ireland. As you give, these pastors are feeding their flocks with the life-giving truth of God's Word they hear on Pathway to Victory. Remember, today the size of your gift will automatically be doubled because of the active matching challenge between now and July 4th. Whether you give $50, $100, $500, or $5,000, your investment will be matched and doubled thanks to this generous arrangement. And to say thank you for your generous gift today, I'd like to send you a brand new book I've written called Unstoppable Power. It's based on Acts chapters 1 through 12. Now, here's David with all the details. Thanks, Dr. Jeffers. When you give a generous gift to Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the brand new book by Dr. Robert Jeffers called Unstoppable Power. You can give online at ptv.org or call us, 866-999-2965. And when your gift is $100 or more, you'll also receive the complete collection of audio and video discs for this month's teaching series, Unstoppable Power. You'll get that along with the corresponding study guide. And because of our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge, any gift you give will be doubled in impact meaning there's never been a better time to give to Pathway to Victory. One more time, our phone number, 866-999-2965, or go online to ptv.org. You could send your request by mail if you'd like. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again Friday for part two of the message, How to Avoid a Church Fight. That's right here on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.